0: Welcome to this week's message at Corner Bible Church. We're so glad that you could join us. If you'd like more information on our church, you could check us out at our website, cornerbiblechurch.com, or you can like or follow us on Facebook. Now here's this week's message. Thank you for listening. Uh, My name is Pastor Davis. For those of you who don't know me, I am one of the teaching pastors here at Corner. And if you have your Bibles, please open them up. Uh, We're going to be in Luke chapter 7 this morning. Luke chapter 7. You're a note-taker today. Uh, The title of today's message is called Room at the Table. Room at the Table. I mentioned this in first service, but we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. We'll be in verse 36 through about chapter 8 and verse 3 or so. So I hope you brought a sack lunch. We're going to be here for a while. Totally kidding with you. We'll start here in verse 36. And we'll open up in prayer. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. Let's pray. Father, we want to approach your word humbly this morning. I thank you so much for what this text represents. You are a God where grace reaches anywhere. You are a God who calls us to yourself. Call out the people far from you. Call out the self-righteous. You bring us to yourself. Father, I just want to pray for every single person in here this morning. Some of us may have entered in with a tough week. Some of us are stressed out behind our minds. Maybe some of us are just a little worried about the election this week. And we want to take a moment to acknowledge that you are the healer. You are the one that can heal our state, and heal us as individuals, Community, Yeah, we ask you that you change us. Help us see your word. Show us yourself this morning. Her name. About ten years ago, when my family and I were living in Africa, we served at this blind school for, for blind children, and we had this giant walled compound. And on that compound was this giant tree we had to cut down. It was about 100 feet tall, 6 feet wide, solid mahogany. Now, we as Americans think of that like, that's a lot of money right there. like That's a that's like a cash cow on our property. But in Africa, they actually burn it for charcoal and sell the charcoal in the market. Like They do not think of it the same way that we do. Um, but this was this giant tree, and we had to cut it down because it was leaning towards the girls' dormitory. And we thought it would be a real bummer if that fell on the girls' dormitory. So we decided we gotta bring that thing down. And we wanted it brought down a very certain way because not only was it in danger of falling on the girl's dormitory, if it fell this way, it would land right on our compound wall and fall over the entire major highway right next door and crush some very poor motorcyclists, right? So we don't want that either. So we wanted it to fall this way. So we went into town. And, uh, my dad and I, we, we got, a, a guy who owned a chainsaw and therefore had a chainsaw business. Uh, which we should have checked on Yelp first. Um, but uh, then uh, he came and saw the tree, and he's like, this is way too big for myself, so we, I'm going to subcontract a guy who owns a chain, and therefore a chain business, and uh, we're going to pull this down the right way. So we get all that set up, they come out, they do the survey, they do all the stuff they have to do, and when it comes the day comes, they finally hook the chain up, and they start pulling it the way we want it to, they begin cutting. And they, this, they cut for a, a while. It was a big tree. And it, all of a sudden, the, the tree starts to lean. And it's not the direction we want it to go. It goes directly over the wall, crushes our wall, and into the highway right next door. Thankfully, nobody's passing at that moment. Nobody got crushed or anything like that. But it did stop traffic for a few hours. And so as this thing falls over, I actually brought a picture. If you want to jump to that first picture there. There's the tree as it's yours truly up there. Uh, there's a tree. as we went across the row. There's our wall. It sunk about two feet down on our wall. And uh, as all this is happening, the chainsaw guy's are like, oh no, we messed up. So they went out there and they start uh, trying to free traffic again. But the, key, the guy in this story that I want to highlight is the chain guy. The chain guy was like, my part in this tale is over. I can go home. I got paid. There's nothing else I need. So uh, he goes to unhook his chain which is now extremely taut because it went the opposite way we wanted it to, and it's actually stretched beyond its means. So as he goes, he bends down to unhook it. It snaps at the tree, and it comes all the way back, snaps his leg in half. And all of a sudden, his blood goes absolutely everywhere. My dad sees this happen, and he's like, we need to help this guy. So we run back over to the house, and he comes in. And he's like, bandages, bandages, we need bandages. So I grab my kit. I go running out there, and I get out there, and I see this scene of this guy just sitting there looking at his leg that's like spewing blood like this every second. And I jump down there. I grab, I got my bandages. I'm pressing it while my dad's bringing the truck around. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is a crazy situation. What in the world's going on? And I lift my head up for the first time, and I realize there's been 8 to 12 people about 20 paces away watching them bleed out. I'm like, oh my goodness. And it's at that moment I also realize I forgot gloves. And I'm like, blood's going everywhere. And I'm like, get my gloves, get my gloves, get me more bandages. And I'm just crying out for them to go get me things. Silence. They didn't want to. They didn't move. I actually learned later that they believed if they got too close, they'd catch a disease from his blood, so they weren't going to help him. And thankfully, this guy was okay. My dad brought the truck around, we loaded him in the truck, we drove him to the hospital, and it turns out he has a broken leg. Shocker there. But he ended up okay. And what was really cool about this story was because of that compassion in the moment, when he was in the hospital for the next several days, Uh, When the doctors came around, it was a Christian hospital, he actually accepted Christ through this really difficult, horrible situation. I don't know where he's at today, I haven't talked to him in probably 10 years, but um, what's interesting, what that made me think about was how a moment of compassion can lead to a moment of redemption. And what we've seen with Jesus over these past several weeks is we see Jesus engaging with the people around him. We see Jesus, he's not focused on being culturally appropriate. When it was on the Sabbath and there'd be people in need of healing, he didn't be like, I can't do it today, sorry guys. He went and healed them. When people had leprosy, he wasn't afraid of touching them and getting leprosy himself. He healed them. When it came to demon-possessed people, he didn't shy away from, like, those guys are weird. He healed them. When it came to the people who were in need of grace, Jesus stepped into their story. He didn't turn people away. And something that we're going to read this morning, and that story we've already read, is another highlighted example of that. We see Jesus extend grace, give grace, in a culture that was self-righteous. Take a look back down at your text again. We'll start there. It says this, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table and I want to stop here for just a second before we get too far we see the Pharisees ask Jesus over for dinner and he's like okay I can do that that's great he walks over there and you notice in your Bibles it says they recline at table how many of you guys see that in your text recline at table it's like that's not a typo thankfully it's not a typo in your Bibles Um, but it actually shows a cultural thing that happens when they eat a meal now most of us when we think of uh, Jewish people in the Bible eating a meal we think of this painting if you want to hit that next slide we think of this painting. How many of you have seen this painting before? It's called the Last Supper, um, and it uh, details when Jesus was giving uh, communion and right before he was betrayed and crucified. We think of this painting, and the problem with this painting is that it's a horrible, like, like horribly, like Western idea of what Jewish culture looked like. In addition to most of the people being white in this picture, uh, there's also the fact that they're sitting in chairs. Right? They didn't sit in chairs back then. It actually looked something more like this. Hit that next slide like this. See, tables in Jesus' day were probably about this high off the ground. They're only about this big. And around all of the tables would be all of these like pillows, mattress-like things. And what you would do is you would lay on your left side, propped up on your left elbow, and you'd eat with your right hand. And you would look like spokes on a wheel almost around this table as you discuss current events things going on in culture, probably with the Pharisees, theology, all that stuff that's going on. And this is what Jesus is setting up in this picture. This sets our scene for what's actually happening in this moment. And in the midst of this, we see, Behold... A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster of ointment and standing behind him, she enters behind him the room, she says at his feet, she fell weeping and began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. The text sets up, they have this calm, nice dinner, it's probably nice and quiet as they discuss current things going on, and all of a sudden the, the doors burst open, this lady comes in, and she comes in screaming. What's interesting about this woman, it says she's a sinner. Now, when it says sinner here, it's not talking like, oh, we're all sinners, we've all done some bad things. No, this woman had a reputation. She was the kind of woman that when she walked in a room, when she walked into the marketplaces, there was going to be whispers that she probably audibly heard around the room. The kind of lady that if uh, you're in the supermarket at Walmart or something and you see her, you probably clutch your kids a little bit and make a wide berth around. Horrible reputation. In fact, our most commentators assume she was probably a prostitute, which in that day and age would have been seen as about as low as a tax collector's. That's the person that's entering the scene. She doesn't come in quiet. It says she comes in weeping. And this word for weeping here in the Greek is not something that like you get misty eyed when you cook onions on the stove. This is, the word is actually used for when somebody dies and you are wailing. That's the word that's being used here. It says this woman, when she sees Jesus, she's heard about this Jesus who forgives sins, who can heal, who is different from all the religious system that's been around her. She falls at his feet, this broken woman. She weeps and she washes Jesus' feet, which is probably dirty from walking the streets of Palestine, with her own tears. And as she's wiping, uh, she's wetting Jesus' feet with her tears, she grabs her hair and she uses that as the towel to scrub his feet and dry his feet. Then she kisses his feet out of reverence. She pours this ointment over it and anoints it. You can see this is quite a scene. A scandalous scene. In fact, the only appropriate response for Jesus as a Jewish rabbi in this scene is to kick her away. Get out of here. The only appropriate response. But he doesn't do that. And when he doesn't do that, it causes quite the reaction from the Pharisees at the table. Take a look at your next verse. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were actually a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. See, rather than seeing this woman who is broken and repentant and contrite, a woman who is in need, he sees her reputation. He sees what the culture knew her for, not for her need. Rather than welcoming her repentance, welcoming her brokenness, he sees her reputation. In fact, this guy's first thought is there's no way this Jesus guy is who he says he is. There's no way this guy is a prophet because if he was a prophet, he'd actually know what this girl was all about and he wouldn't let her touch her with a 10-foot pole. She's dirty, she's unclean, and she's going to leave him with a horrible reputation too. In fact, with her reputation in the Jewish eyes, her touching him would make him ceremonially unclean. See, self-righteousness often sees people in two camps. In, out. Disgusting. Here. When it came down to it for this guy, he wanted to push her from the table. And he's frustrated with Jesus for even allowing her to be there in the first place. This man wanted a metered grace. He wanted a grace that would reach out to people who worked for it, who earned it, who pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps, and a grace that rejected people who didn't do those things. He saw her reputation. He didn't see her need. I think a lot of times in the church, we, we can bash the Pharisees. It's easy. We like easy targets. But how often, if we're honest, how often do we as people in the church often exhibit the same self-righteousness. Same kinds of things. Same things. But every single one of us in here would say we know people who are good people. How many of you guys know good people? That you're like, they're a good person. I bet God would forgive them. But on the flip side of that, how many of us would also be willing to admit that there's people who are like, I hope God never tries to forgive them? All of us. Maybe that's people that's hurt you in the past. Maybe that's people who voted differently than you. Maybe it's people who just caused you pain. And if they came to Jesus for forgiveness, we'd be like, "Please get out of here." The bottom line is, we're often self-righteous, too. We are. I was talking to my wife about this message this week and she asked what it was about and I said, well, I'm looking at, I see a lot of stuff about self-righteousness in this thing. She goes, well, what is self-righteousness? What does that actually look like? Anybody have a spouse that's really uber practical? Anybody? A couple of people maybe? Okay. I, my, I am like the conceptual up in the clouds thinker and she brings me back down to reality a lot of times. And I'm like, you know what? I don't know. I, I don't know. What does that practically look like? So I went online and Google's a great friend of mine. And uh, I found a page, uh article from Paul Tripp. Now, if you're ever looking for some awesome resources on growing or parenting or any of those kind of Bible commentary stuff, Paul Tripp is a fantastic source. I often don't uh, talk really good about people from the pulpit because sometimes there's things are like, oh, that's not so good. But Paul Tripp is great. Uh, he has an article out that were seven, 11 characteristics of self-righteous people. And I, I was reading through it, and I'm like, I got to share this on Sunday because, man, I felt like I just got hit with a baseball bat or a chain to the leg—one of the either one. <laughs> but here's 11 things that I wanted to share this week of what are characteristics of self-righteous people. Here's the first one: self-righteous people do not see their walk with God as a community project. The heavy one. We have a big movement in our church culture today that talks about me. And all I need is me and Jesus. All I need is me and Jesus. All I ever need to grow. And we separate ourselves from the church. We separate ourselves from other people. And the problem is with that, it's, that's really unbiblical. We need each other. We are meant to grow together. Second one. Self-righteous people do not work well with others. Ouch. That one hurts. Self-righteous people consistently believe they are right and know best. Anybody like to be right in this room? I love being right. Ouch. Self-righteous people are resistant to change. I don't like change. Self-righteous people do not respond well when they are reminded they need to change. Self-righteous people do not desire others' exhortation or admonition, even getting angry at times when confronted. Self-righteous people are not patient with those who mess up, Struggle with sin or lose their way. Self righteous people do not deal well with opposition or accusations. Self-righteous people will consistently wonder why God has singled them out for difficulty. How many of you have ever gone through a season like that where like God, why are you singling me out here? Self-righteous people do not see a need to admit or confess sin. Self-righteous people consistently point out the sin of others with an air of superiority. The thing about this list, I don't know about you, but there's a few things on that list, even as I read it, I'm like, oh goodness. I'm self-righteous. There's things I gotta work on in this list. The thing of it is, we would say that, and we would probably say amen to this, that Jesus came to forgive us from all sin, right? We'd say amen to that, right? Jesus came to free us from all sin. And that doesn't just mean sexual sin. It doesn't just mean envy or bitterness or wrath or uh, pride or any of these things we talk about all the time. Not just those things. He came to set us free from our own self-righteousness from the way we view other people. We get these impossible standards, that, like this Pharisee did towards this woman, that she would never measure up to. And oftentimes, as self-righteous people, we set impossible standards for ourselves that God does not view us as came to set you free from all of those things. See people the way God sees people. See, in this story, Jesus is inviting more than one person to the table. The first person he is inviting to the table is the woman, a person who is repenting of her sin. But the second person he is inviting to the table is Simon. He's inviting a self-righteous man who is so blinded by his way of viewing people to see people the way God sees people. In fact, if you look in your text further, Jesus says, answering him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, if Jesus ever says, Davis, I have something to say to you, I'm going to drop everything and listen, right? And he answered, say it, teacher. And Jesus responded, A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When neither could pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them do you suppose will love this man more? What he does here is he answers Simon's self-righteousness of the story, as he often does. He says there's a money lender who has two people who owe him money. One owes 500 denarii, and the other 50. Now, denarii is not a unit of measurement we're probably super familiar with. It's not like 50 bucks and 500 bucks. It's actually closer to a day's wage. A denarii is a day's wage. The guy who owes 50, owes 50 days wages, or about two months of wages. So think two months of your salary, two months of car payments, of house payments, of grocery bills, that's a debt. And then the guy that owes 500, owes a year and a half of salary. Think of a year and a half of your salary, a year and a half of house payment, a year and a half of groceries, all the things. Both of these are sizable debts. And Jesus says, if that man saw that neither of these people could ever pay him back, maybe the circumstances in life would never allow them to pay back. He went to say, I forgive you, I forgive you. You're not, you're not bound by these debts anymore. He says, Which person's gonna love him more? They're both gonna love him. But which one's gonna be a little more thankful? And the man responds, the one I suppose for whom the larger debt is canceled. And Jesus responds. You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I love this line here. He says, do you actually see her? Not the person with the reputation that uh, you find really negative. Not the person that you're just like, I, she never deserves grace. Not that. Do you actually see a woman in need here? Do you actually see her? And In light of that, he says, do you see her? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, he acknowledges the sin, he doesn't ever shy away from that. He says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much but he who would be forgiven little loves little this time when i entered your house you invited me over that's great thank you for inviting me over but he said when i entered your house you didn't even greet me he says you didn't come, let me you didn't wash my feet which are dirty from the day in palestine your feet got really dirty walking the street so when you would walk over to somebody's house they would wash your feet for you that was a common greeting he says, you didn't give me a kiss. That was a common greeting. You didn't anoint my head with oil. You didn't show me any hospitality whatsoever. But this woman, who as rejected by society, came in and did all of those things and more. Why is that? Why is that? And he turns to her. Because your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, Jesus in this text is accomplishing two things. First is that we see Jesus show compassion on the people the culture rejected. And he doesn't forgive cheaply. Notice he doesn't say, ah, it's no big deal, go home, you're all good, do whatever you want. Says, go and sin no more. You are forgiven. This is taken care of. What he's doing in this text is he's showing the gospel is for everyone. No matter how far, no matter how deep entrenched into sin you've gotten, the most beautiful news of the gospel is grace extends to you. He invites you to the table. But the second thing that he's doing in this text is he's not only inviting the woman to the table. Inviting Simon. Inviting this blind, self righteous man who is so caught up in his own self, in his own ego, that he doesn't even recognize that he is in need of Jesus, too. In fact, at this point, this woman who has now accepted Christ, he's actually more in need of Christ than she is at this moment because he has not accepted it. He doesn't even see his need. Jesus is calling out this man to put down his self-righteousness, to put down his judgment and respond to people differently. Church, the same call extends out to us. The gospel was not just meant to change your destination from hell to heaven. The gospel was meant to change every single part of you, especially the way you view other people. The gospel doesn't excuse sin, but it does welcome sinners. It doesn't lash out and treat the world like the world treats the world. Fueled by compassion. Fueled by love. I have a dog. Uh, Her name is Nala. She's a three-year-old pit bull. I love my dog. She is absolutely awesome. In fact, I brought a picture of her today. Go to the next slide. Absolutely love that dog. She is absolutely adorable, and she absolutely loves people. Some of you have been to my house, and you've met her, and uh, you know that she loves a hug. She loves. She's a cannonball of a dog. She just goes nuts when people walk in. She just runs around and uh, brings you her pizza. She loves pizza. And uh, brings you her rope, plays tug of war, all of the things. She's a fantastic dog. We rescued her about three years ago, and uh, she turned out to be a pretty good dog. The one thing I learned about her so far is that she doesn't like other dogs like at all she would be fine if she was the only dog in existence she hates other dogs about 10 months ago we moved to the house where we are at now and we moved to a street where there's a lot of dogs and the owners will always be walking by with their dogs on leashes on by our driveway and whenever a dog walks by my dog goes bananas she just goes absolutely nuts she uh, will jump up in the window and bark, 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 bark. And then she runs to the spare room, jumps up in that window and bark, 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 bark. She's like super offended these dogs even exist and walk by her house. Like she's super offended by these things. And we're working on all that stuff. But one of the dogs in particular she doesn't like. See, one of my neighbors has these two Shih Tzus. Okay? How many of you guys know what a Shih Tzu is? Right? They like to bark too. Right? Uh, they are, yeah, they're interesting. Uh, but they have these two dogs and they walk by too. They walk by, two with their owner. And my dog, when she sees them, of course, is bark, 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 bark. She runs whining all over the place. She's like, Dad, why aren't you offended by this? They're out in our front yard. And uh, uh, it didn't take those do- two, do- two dogs long to notice that my dog doesn't like them. It didn't take them long. And in fact, what they like to do is they break out of the pen in their backyard. And you know the first place they go? My front yard. And they'll do circles in the yard in front of the big picture window until Nala notices them and Zola's too he doing circles, and then now bark, 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 bark. She goes absolutely, she hates it. She hates it. She goes so nuts. And then after a while, they bark back at her, and it's just this bark fest, and I'm like, dogs, if you only knew how quick you were from death right now, like there was just a window between you, right? Uh, And uh, they're just going nuts. And I got thinking about it, and the way we interact with the world sometimes is not all that different. We often see people in the world go out and do worldly things. And we, like my dog, get up in the window and we bark, 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 bark. We get super offended. We we get really offended. We run to the spare room and bark, 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 bark. bark. And when the world sees that drives us nuts, guess what? They bark back. And they yell back, and they say, you guys are just judgmental, or you guys are just full of hate, or whatever the case may be. They go nuts too. What's interesting to me is we often in the church, we talk about how the new generation gets offended easy. How many of you ever heard that before, or said that before? The new generation gets offended easy. And it is it is true, we do get offended. But the thing I noticed is we as a church, we're just as bad we have church splits over color of carpet changes, right? We get offended so easily. And oftentimes, our interaction with the world is just as self-righteous as that Pharisee. Fueled with the same hate they give back. Rather than love. The in this process of yelling at one another through the window... The Holy Spirit is calling us to something better. We learn in Scripture that the world is dead in sin. We say amen to that. Right? The world is dead in sin. They cannot spiritually change unless the Holy Spirit does a work in them. They are dead in sin. That's what the Scripture says. They can't do anything. So it's not incumbent upon them to change. It's on us. We're the ones, if Scripture is true, who experience life. We are the ones who have experienced love love we are the ones who can bring hope. When our hope looks like the same hate they bring out, we are no better. Holy Spirit is calling us to these things. Holy Spirit is calling us to these actions. Even a dog walks by my house you're over at my house, you're sitting with me, and my dog starts going nuts, right? and there's a dog walking by. If I sit there and just go, dogs are going to be dogs, oh well. That would make me a bad dog owner. My job as a dog owner, when my dog goes nuts and reacts to something, is to get up off the couch, grab my leash, put it on her, and tell her to sit. This behavior is not acceptable. She needs change. You can use to respond better. And sometimes, how many of you guys have dogs when they get fixated on something, they're just not going to listen to you if you scream at them or anything like that? They just get fixated, right? Kids too? Okay. There we go. I don't have experience with that one, but uh, dogs I know. When they get fixated, you have to break their fixation. You know how to break a dog's fixation? You guys didn't know you are getting a dog lesson today. You know how to break a dog's fixation? It's not by yelling at them. You know what happens if you yell at a dog? Probably kids too. They just, you just make yourself angry, right? You just get more angry. Not hitting them. That's called animal cruelty. We frown on that. You know how you break a dog's fixation? Get them next to you. Get your leash. Pop your knee out. And spin them like this. And then sit. You know what happens when you do that? They're fixated over here, barking at Lord knows what. And then all of a sudden, they're looking at your couch. And they're like, what in the world, Dad, is happening to my world right now? And all of a sudden, their eyes are up on you. They're watching you, and you say, sit. Do that a few times, you're going to see a world of difference in your dog. You will. That's what happens. Because the thing and the bottom line is it doesn't matter what that dog is doing out there in my front yard. It could be peeing in her favorite spot. It could be running around doing dances. It could be gallivating like a free dog living in America. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All my dog needs to understand is that it is safe with me identity comes from me. She doesn't have to worry about that dog over there or that person walking or whatever. She needs to look at me and respond the way I want her to respond. And it's been super cool watching her grow over these past several months. Six months ago, I had to do that leash trick I just showed you guys like six times a day. Okay, She was just nuts all the time. And now sometimes she still gets up on the window and she still barks. But now I don't have to get the leash out. I stand up from the couch they off and come. Now it comes. and She sits, she looks up at me and waits for her treat. Sometimes she's more and more difficult, but most times we get it. It took her weeks and months to even learn to listen for my voice. She was so distracted by what she was offended by that she didn't even know I was talking to her. It took her a long time to learn to value the response I had for her rather than the response she wanted to do. Six months ago, she didn't even realize I was talking to her. Now she knows to at least listen. Church, when the world offends you, and it's going to, and that self-righteousness creeps up, are you so fixated on the window that you can't hear your master calling you off and sit? Bond differently, and you listen to God's voice in the midst of your frustration. In this season, in our country, where the election didn't go the way we wanted it, I'll tell you what the America I woke, or the Michigan that I woke up in on Wednesday, felt very different from the one on Tuesday. I did acknowledge that. I got a lot of texts from people from our church here. Saying, uh, that didn't go the way I wanted it to. I'm like, I agree. It did not go the way I wanted it to. And it's okay to mourn. It's okay to be really sad. I'm, I'm glad you're sad. But here's the thing, and Mike mentioned this, he stole my thunder a little bit. <laughs> totally kidding, totally kidding. But how Christians are called to respond in the moment doesn't go on the ballot every four years, it's constant, it doesn't change. This doesn't take God by surprise. He's still just as much in control as he was a thousand years ago, and our response in the moment does not change. In fact, if you want the world to see the truth, if you want the world to view, view and value life. We would all say amen to those things. Show them. Show them. Show them the value of life. Not in comment sections. The only thing that does is make you sin. Show them. Show them a life that's different because of the love of Jesus. Show them a life that's been changed. Show them the grace of God that he's given you in your life. Think of this woman who uh, had been forgiven of all these things with the reputation that she had. I guarantee you she left that place that day forever changed. We don't know what happens to her in history. This is the only passage where we even see her. But I guarantee you, she was a force to be reckoned with. Maybe you're here today, and you relate with that woman. Maybe you're here, and you're like, Davis, if I can be totally honest with you, I feel like it took everything I had just to get here today. Maybe you feel like you are approaching in the midst of a great sin in your life. Maybe you feel like you had to wipe yourself off to come to church. Let this text be evidence of the hope you long for, that there is a God out there who forgives everything. You don't have to wait six months when your life's cleaned up, then you can come to him. He's not interested in that person. He's interested in the you now. The brokenness now. psalm says, A broken and contrite heart he will never despise. Christ is making you new. You do not make yourself new invites you to the table. Maybe you're here and you feel like a Pharisee. And if that's the case, if you're self-righteous, or maybe you identify with one of those things on that list, Jesus says, come. No longer do you have to view yourself with impossible standards for yourself or other people. Mercy. The question we have to ask ourselves as we go into this season of our country, maybe into this season at work, that going to be true of us? Will we be a people that reflect the mercy that we were given at the cross when we were just like the people we don't like? We do that. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that you are a God who forgives, who changes for those that feel far away, for those of us who are self-righteous. Thank you for your mercy. I pray for us as we walk into this season. Guide us. Bring us closer to yourself. In your name we pray. If you need prayer, my wife and I are going to be in the prayer in the back because we're on prayer. Um, and if not, you are dismissed. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message here at Corner Bible Church. If you would like more audio resources, please follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or you can go online and visit us on our webpage at cornerbiblechurch.com.